0: Welcome to our Mark series, entitled Incredible. And today, we are preaching the third message in the series, and the title of this message is, Who's in Charge Here? It's a question that I often ask myself, particularly when I am awakened in the middle of the night with anxious thoughts about family About friends, about the church, about my world, my nation, my city. I I just, I'm asking, all right, who's in charge here? Now, I know it's not me. That much I know. Because things would be very much different if it were me. But the question is, who's in charge? And last week, we brought to you the truth of Scripture. I'll tell you who's in charge. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Last week we preached in Mark 1, 1 to 15, that he's in charge and he's come to inaugurate his kingdom. The king has come, the kingdom has come, and he's in charge. But what does his authority look like? That's what today is all about. What does the authority of the one who's in charge look like? Who is he? And how does he exercise that authority? Is it a benevolent exercise of his authority? Or is it like other authority that maybe we've experienced in our lives? Not so nice. Good for the one exercising the authority, but not so good for me under that authority. What is Jesus' authority? Who is the one who is in charge? Who is he? And how does he exercise his authority? The answer to that question is found in today's text. Because in today's text, we have a series of five narratives. They're very similar. They're very similar in length. They're very similar in feel. Mark, the evangelist Mark... Put them in here by God's leading because he wants to teach us about the one who exercises his authority and what that authority looks like. And these five narratives, these five vignettes, these five little sketches, okay, let's call them, are found in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, can I just, just invite you to go to that table right back there right now, won't bother me at all, and grab one. If you don't own one, it's a gift. From us to you. If you have your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And if you don't want to do either, then look on with the person next to you. And if you don't want to do that, just close your eyes and go to sleep. (laughs) Just kidding. Some of you do that anyways. Ooh, Saturday night can can be a little tough on us, huh? So, what we're going to read about is Jesus' authority. He's the one that's in charge. I got that, Al. He's the son of God. I got that, Al. But how does he exercise that authority? Okay, I've heard you say that it's for God's glory and my good. But let's drop down into the details. What does that look like? What does that look like when you are going through a very difficult time right now? And I know many of you are. As Corey alluded to, you've got decisions to make. You've got pressures on you. Things aren't going the way you would like them to go. You're worried. You're anxious. You're like me. Your eyes pop open at 2 in the morning. And for an hour, your brain is bombarded with thousands of images and questions. Why this? Why not that? What's happening here? What about that one? Is this one okay? You feel like a skier on a ski slope that's back on the back of his skis, totally out of control, just careening down the hill, hoping not to hit a tree. And you're screaming as you're going down the hill, Who's in charge anyways? The answer is Jesus. And we're going to see now what that looks like for you in your life. But before we do, let's pray. Because we need to hear this, don't we? And much more we need to see the one who's in charge. We need to see him particularly at 2 in the morning when we can't get back to sleep. Or whenever it is that you have your anxious thoughts. Mine happened to be at 2 in the morning. It's dark. It's still. It's still. I can't get the thoughts out of my head. So let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would reveal to us hmm, who you are. Lord, most of us in this room know that you're in charge. We, we salute that flag. But then we ask, what does that mean in my everyday life? What does your authority look like? What does the exercise of your authority mean for me? How does it fall on me and my family? My friends, my church, my city, this nation, the world we live in. It all seems like it's careening out of control at times. We know it's not. Please show us, Lord. Help us. Reveal to us who you are. And if there are those here that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, do not understand that you are in charge, may this be the day of salvation for them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. There you have it. In our text, God chose the first vignette, the first narrative to speak of this aspect of Jesus exercising his authority. Look with me at Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Read along with me. <clears throat> And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening in the roof, they let down the bread on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Please hear the gasp that went through that home that day. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who Can forgive sins but God alone. Each one of these narratives is going to be associated with the question. The first four, people questioning Jesus' authority. The last one, Jesus questioning them. But here's the first question Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know, that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The scene is pretty intense. Because homes back then had roofs that were covered with turf, they dig through the roof, lower this paraplegic down in front of Jesus, everybody is watching what's going to happen, and they expect Jesus to say, rise and be healed. As a matter of fact, just previous to this text, Jesus has been healing a lot of people at the end of chapter 1, leading up to this. So they're expecting him to say, be healed. They're going to go, yeah, there's another one that's healed. But he doesn't say that. He looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And people began to freak out. Everybody did. Can he say that? Who can say that? The scribes and the leaders who'd been watching him carefully heal all these people said, only God can say that. That's the question that drives this first point. Who can forgive sins? But God alone. Look at it there at the end of verse seven. And that's precisely why Jesus said this. Because he knew that when he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you, that he would elicit in every mind, wait a second, only God can do that. Precisely the point. Jesus meant to say, I'm God. I'm God and I'm exercising my authority as God. And the first way I'm going to reveal it here in Mark is I've come to forgive sins. Oh, hear that. You want to know how God exercises his authority? Let me tell you, friend, he's exercised his authority to forgive your sins. That's to your good. It's to his glory, but it's to your good. In fact, Jerry Bridges says it this way, quote on the screen. We cannot deal with the power of sin unless we have first dealt with its guilt and we deal with it at the cross. Jesus came with a new power, a new kingdom, a new way. And so he said, I am breaking the power of sin. And the way the power of sin is broken in your life is that its guilt is broken over you. Are you still this morning suffering under the guilt of sin? Dear Christian, if you are, I'm here to tell you, Jesus says to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. I don't say that on my authority. I say that on Jesus' authority. And that's the breaking of the power of sin in your life, in your marriage, in your home, at work. You want to be set free from it. It starts with being set free from the guilt of sin. And Jesus has the authority to set you free from the guilt of sin. Not because he just lets you off. No, no, no. This is the one who we will see in a moment took that guilt for you. He paid that price for you. He has the authority to forgive sins. Number two, Jesus has authority to call sinners. The next vignette we're going to drop into is the vignette in verse 13 of chapter 2. Look at it with me. 2.13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Here comes the second question. Here comes the second time that the scribes and the Pharisees are questioning Jesus' authority. The first question was, hey, who can forgive sins but God alone? You can't say that, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, well, listen, what's it easier for me to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and be healed in the first vignette? And they're thinking, of course, oh, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because we won't know if his sins are forgiven until he dies and goes before God. And Jesus, knowing that they're thinking this, says, okay, to show you that I have the authority to forgive this man's sin, he says, rise and be healed. He made his point. I have the authority to forgive sins because I just healed that man. That's why they were amazed. Are you amazed? And in the second vignette, they come with a second question. Why? Why is this man, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at verse 16 with me at the end there. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Because Jesus has the authority as God to turn sinners into saints. Now we were talking about a garden variety of sinners. Not even like sinners like you or me. These were the scum of the earth. Let me explain. These were tax collectors. They were Jewish people who were hired by the Romans to collect very stiff taxes from their own people. Now, we just went through April 15th, where all of us realized we worked the first six or five or four months of the year for someone other than ourselves. We grind our teeth. We pray in the spirit. We say, thank you, Lord. You tell me not to complain. And we submit to our government. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Some of you are saying, forget amen and say, oh my. (laughs) All right. These tax collectors are far worse. First of all, they're working for the hated Romans, the occupation. So think of wartime and we're under occupation. Then they didn't just collect your taxes that you owe. Whatever egregious sum that might be. Let's say it's 20%. They would come and say, I'll tell you what, friend, because we're fellow Jews. I know you owe 20 to the Romans. I'm going to charge you 30 because 10's going to stay with me. They were super rich people. They were super corrupt people. They were hated by the Jews. And this is the guy that Jesus walks by Levi and says, come follow me. He knew exactly what he was doing. And then he says, bring all your friends. We're going to have a party at your house. And the scribes are going crazy at this point. Like, what? Those guys? I mean, fill in the blank in your mind. Drug dealers, pimps, fill in the blank. Whatever is the worst for you, the most egregious, selfish, arrogant, evil person you might imagine, that's who God calls. God calls sinners. God calls sinners. Here's why. Not because they're going to remain sinners and somehow He's going to just bring them into the kingdom in their sin. No. God calls sinners because He has the power to turn sinners into saints. That's us. He has the power to change despicable people into His saints. Praise God. Praise God. As a matter of fact, you see this meal that he's having with them? Jesus did that on purpose. Jesus went and had this meal on purpose because Jesus, throughout these five vignettes, is connecting himself to the biblical images and pictures of God in the flesh, of the Son of God come, of the Messiah. And this is one of those pictures. In fact, look with me at Revelation 2. 19.9 on the screen, which I believe is what Jesus wanted to bring forth in the minds of all his Jewish friends, because they knew about this. Revelation 19.9 speaks of a final messianic supper or meal. And Jesus is wanting to cause us to think that way. Read it with me there on the screen. And the angel said to him, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a very Jewish image. The messianic final supper on that last day. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And what Jesus is saying is, On that day, the most unlikely of characters will be there. Because I've called them. The most undesirable of characters will be there. Because I've called them. Will you be there? That's the question. I don't know everybody that's seated in this auditorium, but that marriage supper is only for those whom God has called, whom God has given faith to repent and believe in Jesus, and it does not depend on how good or bad they are. He calls the most undesirable and unlikely. That's the point here. Why? Because he can. Because he's God. He's sovereign in this. And the scribes and the Pharisees did not like it. Jesus is exercising his authority to do what he came to do. Remember last week's sermon? He says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, I have come proclaiming the gospel of God. The kingdom of God is here because the king's here. Repent and believe in the gospel, he was saying in himself. So he's coming not to take sides, He's coming to take over. He's the king. That's how his authority is being exercised. And listen carefully. That authority means that he has the authority to forgive your sins if you will repent and believe. That authority means that he has the authority to call sinners like us because he's going to make us into saints. But it's in the context of the local Jewish authorities, the authorities of the nation, the religious leaders, and they don't like it one bit, and they are going to continue not to like it. Because look at the next vignette, the next narrative. Point number three, Jesus has authority to inaugurate a new kingdom. Here's where he's really going to bring his point home. Actually, the next two narratives, narrative three and four, both relate to this same point. Jesus has come to inaugurate a new kingdom. Well, let's read the first one together. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. Mark 2, 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples, here's the third question, by the way the third question just comes from the people. So the first two questions came from the religious authorities. The third group that's questioning Jesus' authority, have you ever found yourself questioning Jesus' authority? Yeah, you know how you know you're questioning Jesus' authority? This is how I know I'm questioning Jesus' authority. When I lie awake at night with anxious thoughts going through my mind at two in the morning, (laughs) when I grumble at noon, um, I'm questioning his authority. So, you know, it's not just the religious leaders that were questioning his authority, it was the people. They, They didn't get it. They didn't understand in point number two that Jesus said this I didn't come for those who are well, I came for those who are sick. That's what it says at the end of that first point. I didn't come for those who are righteous. I came for sinners. So what is he saying? He's saying, if you don't think you're sick, then I've not come for you. If you don't think that you're a sinner, then I've not come for you. That's why he said, repent and believe. Oh, if you're here this morning, (laughs) the requisite or the prerequisite for the Lord coming to you is that you simply acknowledge, I'm sick. I'm a sinner. The Bible says that everyone that does that receives god's healing and god's forgiveness now that is a gift from god that is something god does in your life that is something his spirit works in you but oh friend if you're sitting here and you're wondering then that's all god is saying humble yourselves and admit i'm sick and i need to be healed i'm a sinner and i need a savior he runs that is the one he came for he didn't come for the one that says no thank you i'm just fine my life's good So if you're feeling a little sick and a big-time sinner, praise God. You're right there. He's coming to you. He's here. But point three, he came to inaugurate this new kingdom. And so they asked this third question. Hey, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, now, listen carefully to the picture that he gives them, because he's doing this with something in mind. He's thinking of a biblical category to equate himself with God that's going to help them understand. He's giving them little clues of who he is and how he exercises his authority. As long as you have the bridegroom, I'm in verse 19b, as long as you have, as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them then they will fast on that day no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does the patch tears away from it and the new the new from the old and a worse tear is made and no one puts new wine into old wine skins if he does the, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wine skins what Jesus is saying here is I didn't come to reform Judaism I can Came to renew, to bring a new, to fulfill Judaism. Judaism was pointing to what I'm bringing the kingdom of God, the new kingdom, the new covenant. I didn't just come to add on to Judaism a nice feature, I came to fulfill it and therefore to bring something new. Now, when he uses this illustration of the bridegroom, he is, he is speaking of himself. And there's no time to explore this, but I invite you to explore this. This is where we as Gentiles come at a disadvantage to this text. We've got to get ourselves into first century Judaism to understand this. For a Jew, the bridegroom, was God himself. So he's not even coming here saying, I'm coming as a servant of God. No, no, I'm coming as God himself, God on a mission. Remember he said, I came to proclaim the gospel of God because I'm God. And I am came to tell you to repent and believe in the gospel. I'm the gospel. So here this illustration, this, this metaphor, this story of a bridegroom is intended to tell them again, I'm God. But what about the story where he says, look, my disciples aren't going to fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast because we're not coming to add on to their system we're going to honor their system, but we're exploding their system. This is the new system. Now, his disciples don't even know it yet because they're kind of freaking out too at this point. They're like watching the exchange go on, and they're going, "Oh, oh these are like the leaders." And you're, what are you saying? What'd you just say to them? Because Jesus is saying, "I'm not going to. My my followers don't fast like these guys because that's the old system. I've come with a new, a new kingdom. I am the king inaugurating the new kingdom." So they're not going to fast now because God is with them. He's standing right there in their midst. But notice what he says. Look at the rest of it. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast on that day. You know what he's talking about? The way the kingdom's going to come is that I, the bridegroom, are going to be taken away. He's talking about his death and crucifixion on the cross. His resurrection three days later. His ascension... 40 days after that so he's saying of course they don't understand it yet i mean they're like you know they're just trying to figure out what is going on here he's saying look i'm god i'm here they're not fasting while i'm here but i'm going to be taken away from them at my death and resurrection and at that time yes they'll be fasting he's telling them how the kingdom is going to come he's telling them how the kingdom is going to come he is god on a mission Here's the application for you. Listen, friend. Jesus hasn't come as a nice little add-on to your life. You know, to like upgrade your life. To give you that feature. You know, the hands-free telephone in your car. Now, Jesus has come to totally give you a new life. Sometimes that's a little uncomfortable. A new creation. He's come to explode your little system. This isn't a get help quick, you know, strategy. This isn't a self-help book. This isn't like the 21-day fix diet that he's just going to sort of add on to you so that you can look a little better and feel a little better. For some of us, it's too late. We're not going to look any better. (laughs) We're probably not going to feel much better. No, no. He's come to give you a totally new life. To explode your paradigm. Stop asking why my disciples don't fast like John's and the Pharisees. Because they're different. They're of my kingdom. I am exploding Judaism. Fulfilling it with something new. They didn't like that. They really didn't like that. And this next narrative, the fourth narrative still under this third point, Jesus has the authority to inaugurate a new kis- kingdom. They're really not going to like it because Jesus now is going to mess with the very ground, with the very center of Judaism. Listen, what made you a Jew primarily were two things back then, circumcision and the Sabbath. Why? Because Israel was God's people. And so the way God distinguishes people is he put a mark on them, circumcision, circumcision, So glad that in the New Testament it's not that mark. And number two, he said, you keep the Sabbath. So wherever you were in the world, if you wanted to find out where are the Jews, they'd say, oh, it's the Sabbath. By the way, the Sabbath is when? Friday at sundown. It ends when? Saturday at sundown. So wherever you are in the world, if you just look, who's not working on Friday sundown to Saturday sundown? Those are the Jews. They're separate. They honor God. And so Jesus is about to touch that one. He's going to make an amazing statement. Let's read it together. Verses 23 to 28. This is narrative number four, vignette number four, of how Jesus exercises his authority. Verse 23. One Sabbath, so it's on the Sabbath that he does this. this is great. I mean, this is in your face time. Okay, I'm not going to say that. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, so I Just watch, the Pharisees are following them with those little notebooks, you know, just following, and it's the Sabbath. And they're walking through the grain fields. So immediately, they're doing something wrong because the Pharisees had said the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. They had so micromanaged it, so defined it down to ridiculous human lengths that they said, if you walk more than eight hundred meters, a little bit more than eight football fields, that's work. You've you, you've just broken the Sabbath. So they're probably just pacing behind them, pacing behind them, pacing behind them. And when they got to eight hundred meters, they went, ah. And then they were hungry. So they grabbed the grain. Now, I I come from the city. You know, I used to think tomatoes came from Publix. I didn't know that you grew them on a plant. So I don't know about this. Some of you know about this. But they grabbed the grain. Somehow they did whatever they do to get the grain. And the law said you couldn't do that because that was enough to call it reaping. And on the Sabbath, you can't work. So they're hungry. You know, they're shoving it in their mouth. Whatever they're doing, it's coming up. And so the, the Pharisees are thinking, well, let's read what they're thinking. Verse 23. When Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Fourth question. Fourth question, questioning Jesus' authority. Now, by the way, so do you get the picture? You got God walking with his followers. Now, granted, they weren't impressive. Neither are we. And they were probably like, you know, eating in a weird way. Maybe it was like snorting or something. I don't know. They were loud. They might have been Cuban Jewish disciples. I'm not sure. But, but, you know, there was a lot to critique, okay? But you got God with his people and it's on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are saying, hey, he's not saying anything to them. Doesn't he know? Doesn't he have his new little uh, Apple watch that says that they've gone 800 meters and alarm should go off and say, stop, drop, you can't walk anymore today. And look, they're eating the grains. And they're saying, you know what? If he won't say anything about it, we're going to say something about it because we're the guarders. The guarders? We are the protectors. We are the protectors of our religion. We will make sure that Judaism is protected here. And so we're going to rebuke God. And we're going to say something. I don't know about that person over there in the church. I'm, I don't know. What, do you see what they're doing? We, we better say something. And they question God. It's amazing. So do we all the time. Lord, wait, wait a second. What? Why this? Lord, why not that? Lord, Lord, what is going on here? Lord, and this usually happens. I tell you at 2 in the morning, okay, when it's dark and Desi's sleeping and I'm trying to go back to sleep and it's all quiet and, you know, the demonic dog behind me has stopped barking and I, I finally there's peace and my eyes go bing and I just start questioning God. Just like that. And listen to what God says to them. Verse 24, 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and Now, Jesus is referring to something that happened probably a thousand years earlier in the reign of King David. He, David, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, Now, here is where it's going to really go nuclear. Jesus says this now, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, this is Jesus' favorite name for himself, actually exclusively, he's the only one that uses it for himself. The son of man, pointing back to this divine, authoritative, powerful figure of Daniel 7, the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh, it's on, it's on. He just threw down. He just called them out. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Why? Because I didn't come to add on to or keep your petty little man-made additions to the law. I'm aware of the fourth commandment. I know what it's all about. It's meant to serve man. It's meant to bring joy. The Torah is meant to be something that's a blessing, but you have turned it into something that's formal and legalistic and snuffs the life out of people. They got their little counters on, making sure they don't go 800 meters on a Sunday. Sabbath I've come to inaugurate the new not sustain the old not sustain your traditions I am Lord of the Sabbath Edwards in his commentary on this passage says the following Jesus corrects a mistaken interpretation that makes of Torah the word of God a burdensome yoke on human existence and recovers its true intent as an aid and guardian of life. Don't you see, Jesus came to bring a new covenant forged in his blood, the Sabbath rest. He will define it. Jesus came to break The stifling legalism and formalism of dead religion. And to bring the life that only comes in him. For he's the author of life. He came to turn our drudging duty. Our duty that can become a drudgery into a delight. He's come to do that for some of you this morning. I don't know where you're at I don't know what you think about Christianity. I don't know what you think about the rules that God has given us. They are valid rules. We are to keep these. You are to keep the Sabbath. I'm not talking up against that at all. But, but, but sometimes we lose the life and it becomes a dull drudgery. And God wants to bring a delight to your duty. It is a duty. You have a responsibility. So do I. He is Lord. But there's life there. There's life there. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. But they're done asking questions because now the final question is going to come from Jesus. Look at the final narrative, beginning in Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. We're still on a Sabbath... But we got one more point to make. And here's the point. Here's the fourth and final point. Jesus has authority to restore broken humanity. Jesus has authority to restore broken humanity. So Jesus is in a synagogue. And it's the Sabbath. And they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And Jesus is thinking this, I believe. I have come to preach the gospel of God and I am going to preach the gospel of God every day. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am going to do what the gospel of God says because I define it. I've come to bring a new. I believe right before he heals this man on the Sabbath and incurs the ultimate wrath of the Jewish leaders, after this they say, we're going to destroy this man. I believe he was thinking this. On the screen, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This is a passage from the prophet Isaiah, maybe 700 years earlier, when he's predicting, he's prophesying about the king, about the Messiah, about the son of David, about the one whom has, will come and bring the kingdom of God. And read, listen to what he says here. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That happened to Jesus at his baptism. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring Good news to the poor, to this poor man with the withered hand. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, the brokenhearted who are suffering. To proclaim liberty to the captives who are captives of sin and formalism and legalism and death. And and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. I believe he was thinking that when he said the following, back to Mark chapter 3. Verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, put yourself in the place of the man with the withered hand. Okay, first of all, he's got a withered hand, which back then was bad news. There was no social security uh, claims. There was no unemployment. There was no like you know, prosthesis you can put on your hand. You, you were in big trouble if your hand was withered. Secondly, he's seen Jesus heal people. He's heard about Jesus. So he's probably sitting there wondering, will he heal me? But then he's also probably watched the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. And he sees the Jewish authorities watching Jesus and he knows it's the Sabbath and he knows that according to their tradition, you cannot heal a man of a withered hand on the Sabbath. The only thing you can do on a Sabbath is enough work to prevent death. Like even if someone's wounded on the Sabbath... Like they're in a building that's collapsed, you can do enough work to pull them out of the building, but if, if you kind of figure, okay, they're going to survive, you have to wait till the Sabbath is over. So certainly a withered hand does not qualify as something that's life-threatening. So he knows that he can't legally at least according to man's traditions, heal him. So he's sitting there wondering like, well, there's God, maybe there's Jesus. Who is this man? I've seen him do amazing things. I've heard that there was this guy who was a paraplegic and he healed him and he talked about forgiving his sins. And I, I've kind of known from Judaism that because my hand is withered, it's probably because of sin and I'm a sinner and people look at me as a sinner. And he's sitting there, but then he's thinking, oh, but please don't call on me, Jesus. I don't want to get between you and those Jewish leaders. These guys look hot. They look really angry. I want to live. I'd rather live with a withered hand than die. Man, what happens? Jesus goes, you, come here. He gets up and he walks up there. And he sets up the confrontation. Verse 4. And he said to them, now, no longer are they asking him questions. No longer are they questioning his authority. He's not going to question, in a sense, their authority. He's got a little quiz for these leaders. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now, we come to this, again, a little bit at a disadvantage. Because we're not Jews, we don't understand the meaning of Sabbath like they would. But in essence, what he's asking, the first question is, what should I do in response to this man's need? Now remember, he's thinking Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He knows he's come to proclaim the gospel. He knows he's come to bring a new kingdom. He's not going to let their traditions prevent him from doing what he, God, has come to do because he's God. But he's asking them, how should I respond to this man? Now the guy's just standing right there next to you know, him. <laughs> you know, he's a poor guy. He's a withered hand. He's the nobody. And they don't say a word to him. And then he says, is it lawful to save life or to kill? Now, all of a sudden, he looks them right in the eyes and he knows exactly what they're thinking. See, that second question is designed to ask them, how are you going to respond to me? The first question is, should I do good or evil? Should I heal this guy or not on the Sabbath? Is your tradition, does your tradition trump the kingdom of God coming and the gospel being revealed here? Now, they didn't understand those terms, but that's what he was thinking. The second question is, and if I do it, are you going to kill me? Now, he knew the answer. I mean, at this point, smoke is just coming out of the Pharisees in their ears. They are really mad. They're not the only one. Their anger was sinful. His anger was righteous. Look at the rest of this verse 4. But they were silent. Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. No sin in that anger. Son of man is sinless. This was righteous indignation grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and it was restored. Can you imagine? All your life, a withered hand? Can you imagine? It just went boom and it's restored. And they were still hard in their heart. Because look what they did in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Two enemies, Pharisees and Herodians, did not get together. One was secular, one was religious. How to destroy him. Here was where God's anger, righteous anger was at the indifference of these religious leaders to God's mercy and grace, to the gospel going forth. Their tradition was more important than the kingdom going forth. I'm going to leave you with this thought. When they said that they held counsel with the Herodians, the Pharisees with the Herodians, against him, how to destroy him, what they were doing is they were plotting to do the very thing that Jesus came to do. They thought they were just protecting Judaism. They were actually plotting to do what Jesus came to do because a story that I did not share with you but immediately precedes these five vignettes, these five narratives, is found where Jesus heals a leper. And I believe the text is on the screen there for you. Okay, I'll read it to you. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I believe it's the next slide. Okay? And, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus switches places with this leper. Huh? Yes. Listen, a leper back then had to live in desolate places. Why? Why? Because he had leprosy. And back then they couldn't control it. So you had to quarantine him. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. There are crowds around him. But he's walking by and this leper cries out to him and says, If you will, you can make me clean. That's a lot of faith. You've got the authority to make me clean. Now, prior to this, he'd seen him heal a lot of people. And Jesus stops and does the unthinkable. He's, this is where it started, right here. He does something that you weren't supposed to do in Judaism. He reaches out and touches an unclean person. But God can do that. Because, see, the uncleanness isn't going to go on God. No, the holiness of God is going to go on the unclean person. That's what happens when He touches you and me, or your loved ones. So He does that, and then He heals Him, and then He tells the leper, don't tell anybody. The leper goes and tells everybody. So what happens? Jesus gets mobbed. And what does it say there at the end of that scripture? It says here, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. The leper gets healed, goes in with all the people, and he's partying with everybody. Jesus, who healed him, goes from the populated area to the desolate places. Oh, friends. Jesus is pointing to the day when on the cross he will exchange places with you and me. He will touch our uncleanness and take it on himself. He will become sin for us. And he who was at the right hand of the Father, he who had the perfect relationship with the Father, will be exiled into desolate places. God will reject him. He will be put into the place where the, the sinners and the wicked are. He will be God will turn his face from him until he will cry, My God, my God, why has you forsaken us? And as we're passing him, he will say, Now you go to the Father's side. You go to the populated places. You go to the place where you have fellowship with the Father. I will take your reproach on the cross. I'll exchange places with you. And that, my friends, is the kind of authority that our Lord exhibits for our good And his glory. Friends, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Here's my appeal to you. If you are wrestling with guilt, then run to the one who has the authority to forgive your sins. Go to the cross. Listen, you cannot deal with the power of sin unless you have first dealt with its guilt. And we deal with it at the cross. That's where Jesus dealt with it. Jesus has authority to call sinners. That second authority that he has. If you are stuck in a lifestyle that you know is not good, then run to the one who has authority to call sinners and change them into saints. Jesus has authority to inaugurate a new kingdom. My friends, God wants to give you a new heart. Not just reform your old one, but a totally new heart. And if following Jesus has become a dry drudgery for you, dead duty then submit yourselves to the one who has the authority to turn your duty into delight. And Jesus has the authority to restore broken humanity. If you are broken this morning, and so many of us are, with a withered heart, you feel like you're in desolate places alone, come to the Savior who took your place in those desolate places and will restore you as you stretch your life out to Him in faith. Let's bow our heads and pray. Worship team, please join me up front. Father, I pray that you would give us a vision of this Jesus, Son of God, of the one who's in charge, of the one who has come to set us free, the one who has come to forgive our sins, the one who has come to call sinners and change them into saints, the one who has come to inaugurate a new kingdom, and a new king, King Jesus, the one who has come to restore broken humanity. Lord, I pray that if there are those here this morning who are broken, who are guilty, or those who, who just feel like, not me, that you would call them. Lord, I pray if there are those here this morning that don't know you, that this would be the day that your kingdom would burst forth in their lives. They would bow their knee to the Savior. They would repent and believe in the gospel in you, Jesus. By your spirit, Lord, I pray this. Father, in Jesus' name, amen.